Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The coronavirus death toll in the United States right now is 72,233. It's a continued steady loss of about 2,000 people, neighbors, friends, family members, dying every day in this nation from this virus. At this point, a month ago, the death toll was just over 10,000. Now, President Trump has announced he is reversing course, saying that the coronavirus task force will continue, explaining he had no idea how popular the task force was until he saw the backlash about phasing the group out. Moments ago, the president also confirmed that Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx will continue in their current roles on that task force. This, as I'm learning that some on the task force and in the administration have been urging President Trump to take the lead on an ambitious national testing program so that the virus can be quickly identified and isolated and society can responsibly take steps to reopen. This includes surveillance testing so workers could go into, say, a nursing home and test everyone and get results back very quickly. But that would require President Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act to force companies to manufacture tests and reagents, mandating that labs hire and expand their ability to test. And President Trump so far has rebuffed those suggestions. He is opting instead to listen to voices on the task force and in the administration that say that such a move is not necessary, that private industry will certainly do this on its own. Voices that are eager to reopen the economy, at least partly motivated to boost the president's reelection chances. Today, a former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention testified before Congress saying that as bad as this pandemic has been, it's, quote, just the beginning. Another expert also testified today that, to her knowledge, no state has met all of the criteria laid out by the White House task force for reopening, even as a majority of states have already begun this process. The plan right now seems to be to ignore the science and hope that all goes well. New Jersey's governor today announced that he is extending that state's public health emergency for another 30 days as medical experts continue to warn of a surge in cases throughout many parts of the country. The New York City subway closed overnight, first time in over 100 years, to clean the cars. We have turned the corner and we're on the decline. You take New York out of the national numbers, the numbers for the rest of the nation are going up. What we're doing here shows results. Across the country as a whole, the new case count is not falling, hovering somewhere over 20,000 every single day. I think that we need to understand this may be the new normal. We may not be able to get transmission down much more. I hope we can. But many places reopening anyway. Hotspots now growing in cities like Dallas. Still, Texas will allow hair and nail salons open Friday, moved up from mid-May. All but these seven states are now taking steps to get back in business. On Monday, restaurants could open in Florida. On Tuesday, cops in Jacksonville had to break up a tailgate party at a taco stand. The risk of the coronavirus is a scam. Right now, what I fear is there's a rush to reopen, in some places at least, that's going to end up Uh, with people losing their lives who didn't have to lose their lives, who could have been saved if there had been more care. Good news. There is no evidence this virus is mutating to become more lethal or contagious, according to a new genetic analysis from UCL in Britain. And who is this coronavirus infecting? Well, around 90 percent of positives in San Francisco's Mission District are people unable to work from home. According to a new study, 95% of them Latinx. We're still seeing a disproportionate number of black Chicago um, as uh, people who are dying as a result of COVID-19. Airlines now hoping we'll get back in the air. Average passengers per plane is up to 23 from just 17 last week. I think people are going to have to make their own judgments about uh, 
you know, their health. But yeah. we're doing everything we can. Meanwhile, we hear the city of Houston might now furlough all its employees this summer, except fire and police. Wendy's just announced its fresh beef shortage will likely last a few more weeks. And more long lines at food banks here in America. Today, it's Pittsburgh. And we just heard from Maryland that 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, they are going to be opening the beaches. That's good news for people in the D.C. area like yourself, Jake. But listen, whatever governors say, whatever businesses open, for most of us, it will still be down to a personal decision. Do we go out? Do we think it's safe? I say most of us, because some of us just don't have that luxury. There are millions of Americans who will need to risk their health to get out there, to feed their families, also to save the sick and to keep all of us safe. Jake? That's why the nationwide testing program that so many officials keep urging President Trump to, to start doing uh, is so important for those frontline workers, for those people who need to go back to work to survive. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Joining me now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, uh, you heard the former FDA commissioner under President Trump, Scott Gottlieb, say uh, today that we may not be able to get the number of new cases mm-hmm. below 20 to 30,000 a day and that most likely cases will continue to rise. Uh, do you agree? Is, is that going to be the new normal? Yeah, I think we, you know, we've got some evidence of, of this now, uh, Jake. You know, sort of middle of March when this, this pause went into effect for the nation. Obviously, the different states sort of abided by this at different, different times and some more, more uh, diligently than others. But yeah, if you sort of look and say, hey, look, in, during a stay-at-home sort of order for the nation, there's still going to be some baseline level of transmission. It's a very contagious virus. Uh, frontline workers, obviously, people going out and doing essential tasks, whatever it may be, asymptomatic spread, coming home not even knowing they have the virus and spreading it, uh, is is part of what's driving that those numbers, you know. I mean, twenty to thirty thousand of people getting infected every day. Maybe it could come down a little bit more if we got more diligent, even more diligent about stay at home. But obviously, as you know, Jake, uh, we're going in the other direction. At least this week. I mean, many states are are reopening. Take a listen to what President Trump uh, had to say today about the virus. This virus is going to disappear. It's a question of when. Will it come back? In a small way, will it come back in a, a fairly large way? But we know how to deal with it now. Just yesterday, uh, the president said it, it would go away even without a vaccine. Is there any reason for us to think that coronavirus will just pass without a vaccine? Yeah, I, I wish there were. I mean, you know, I, we're learning more about this virus every, every day, Jake. I mean, there were other viruses in the past, like uh, SARS, for example, which did sort of uh, die away after a period of time. This is just a much more contagious virus. It's becoming what's called endemic, meaning, you know, sort of firmly placed in a, in, in, on the planet, really, in every country almost on the planet. So I think it may have lulls, may go up and down a bit with seasonality. There's some evidence that uh, with uh, warming temperatures, about a 2% drop in, in the uh, virus for every one degree Celsius. But I don't think it's going away. I mean, the two ways that, it, that we start to really make it go away are a vaccine, which, you know, we've talked about, it's going to take some time, or something known as herd immunity, where so many of us and, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the, the world becomes infected. If you, if you say 60 to 70 percent of this country, that would mean, you know, some 200, 220 million people. If there's 200,000 cases a day, which some of these models have suggested, that's a million a week, that'd be five years, Jake, before we get to herd immunity. So, uh, it may go away, but not not anytime soon. And the vac, we got to outpace it really until a vaccine becomes available. The president keeps saying these things that are completely a- anti-scientific, a-scientific. Uh, a study out of San Francisco found that nearly 90 percent of people there who tested positive in, in the city's mission district are not people who can work from home, um, suggesting perhaps many of them are service workers. More than half of them right. reported uh, experiencing no symptoms. Now, you contrast that with a study out of New York hospitals that found most patients were home when they contracted the virus. Explain this to us. What does this suggest? I think what this suggests, I followed this closely, what this suggests is that uh, people can really contract this virus 
at home or out in the community. I mean, maybe that maybe that's obvious, but I think the point is that people who even were at home most likely had members of their household or people who, who came over for some, some reason or the other who probably, hopefully, were completely asymptomatic, so it wasn't like they had symptoms and came over, but were still, you know, had the virus in their body and were spreading it. I mean, that, that's what's happening, and I think this is a message. First of all, it's a very contagious virus. I think everybody sort of gets that by now. But this idea, again, that people say, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm young, healthy, I'm willing to, to game it, chance it, whatever, and then I come home and I spread it to my family, that's real. People should look at what happened in New York and take that as a, as a, a sort of a lesson here. Again, I, it's tough. It's not going to be forever. But for the time being, you have to know that if you go out, you're not just risking you know, your own health in terms of potentially getting infected and getting sick but you're risking the people you love, their health as well, because you could spread this virus to them. Sanjay, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in for a CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Fact versus Fears, that's hosted by Sanjay and Anderson Cooper. That's tomorrow night, Thursday. Among their guests, former Vice President Al Gore, filmmaker Spike Lee. We're monitoring the White House right now with a press briefing with uh, new press secretary Kayleigh McEnany is about to begin as President Trump is changing his mind on the future of the coronavirus task force. Plus, anybody who says they aren't scared during this is lying to you. That's the message from one paramedic on the front line. A look at the fear and anxiety many healthcare workers are feeling right now. Stay with us. Um, try to minimize the noise. The White House Coronavirus Task Force is meeting right now, though it seems even some of its members are at least somewhat in the dark about what might come next. President Trump announced this afternoon that the task force will continue indefinitely. This is just one day after Vice President Pence, who leads the task force, said it would soon be winding down. But the president says changes are coming. He plans to add more members, ones who are focused on reopening the economy, and some of the original participants may leave. CNN's Caitlin Collins uh, joins me now. Caitlin, uh, the president just now clarified who he's keeping on the task force. Tell us more. Yeah, he says Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci will be staying on in their current roles in the task force. He praised the work that they've done. And he says that next week the vice president is going to be announcing some new members added to that task force without saying who those new members are going to be. But, Jake, there are questions about really what these roles are going to look like going forward for even people like Dr. Burks and Dr. Dr. Fauci, given the fact that just yesterday, the president and the vice president were saying their work would be done as a task force by the end of the month. People said we should keep it going. So let's keep it going. Reversing what he and the vice president told reporters yesterday, President Trump now says he won't shut down the coronavirus task force after all. I get calls from very respected people saying, I think it would be better to keep it going. It's done such a good job. It's a respected task force. The comments came one day after Vice President Pence, who leads the task force, said it could wrap up its work by the end of the month. After facing backlash for the move, given that the nation is still in the middle of a pandemic, Trump says it will continue on indefinitely and may add new members. We'll be adding two or three additional members to the task force. Testing. But questions remain about how public his health experts will be going forward. A House panel met today without Dr. Anthony Fauci after the White House blocked him from testifying because the committee is led by Democrats. Even the top Republican on that panel said he wanted to hear from Fauci. And I want the record to show I joined uh, the chairman urging that uh, Dr. Fauci be allowed to testify here. I think it would have been uh, good testimony, useful to this committee, I think useful to this country. The president also now says he did wear a mask during his first trip across the country in months. Though he didn't appear in front of cameras in one, Trump says he wore a mask as he toured the Honeywell plant in Arizona. Yeah, I can't help it if you didn't see me. I mean, I had a mask on, but I didn't need it. And I asked uh, specifically the head of Honeywell. Today, a new report from The New York Times details how Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, installed a team of volunteers to help with the federal government's efforts to obtain medical supplies, but only ended up making it more complicated. The young volunteers mostly had experience in venture capital and private equity, but they knew little about government procurement. 
While sorting through tips about desperately needed supplies, the volunteers were told to prioritize those from political allies, and they often ignored the federal officials who have spent years preparing for emergencies. The president wanted to make sure that we had the best people doing the best jobs. The White House is also bracing for a grim jobs report that's expected on Friday after the president's top economic advisor said that unemployment could hit 20 percent. This is the biggest shock that our economy has ever seen. Trump says he doesn't think he'll be blamed for the economy. You know, it's very interesting. It's one thing. Nobody's blaming me for that. Uh, I built the greatest economy with a lot of great people that we've ever had, and I'm going to rebuild it again. White House meeting earlier today, President Trump did not seem to be receptive to concerns expressed by a nurse uh, about a lack of protective gear. Yeah, Jake, this was notable. This is Sophia Thomas. She's a nurse from New Orleans. She's the president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And she was talking about what it's like getting your hands on medical gear as a nurse these days. She was saying that there's an N95 mask that she's been reusing for weeks, and she called it sporadic but manageable. And watch how the president reacted when she made those comments in the Oval Office. I think it's sporadic. As I talk to my colleagues around the country, certainly there are pockets of areas where PPE is not ideal, but this is an unprecedented time. And the infection control measures that we learned uh, back when we went to school, one gown, one mask for one patient a day or per time, this is a different time. And I've been reusing my N95 mask for a few weeks now. Sporadic for you, but not sporadic for a lot of other people. Oh, no, I agree, Mr. President. Because Absolutely. I've heard the opposite. I've yeah. heard that they are loaded up with with uh, gowns now. And, you know, initially we had nothing. We had empty cupboards. We had empty shelves. We had nothing because it wasn't put there by the last administration. So, Jake, you see there, that is a nurse in New Orleans talking about what she experiences at work on a daily basis, talking about what it's like for her going in, dealing with patients as young as a month-old baby, and the president there saying that that's not what he's heard. But, of course, she was just talking about her experience and what it's like for her herself to try to get her hands on a mask to go to work. His body language there was fascinating, not listening to her, not facing her, crossing his arms, doesn't want to hear uh, anything that could be perceived as, as criticism. Kaylin Collins, thank you so much. Uh, hospitals already crushed by an overwhelming number of coronavirus patients are seeing a new crisis emerge, the mental health of doctors, nurses, and other frontline health care workers. Experts warning that those in the hardest hit areas, such as New York City, are more likely to face anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress at rates similar to soldiers returning from combat. CNN's Erica Hill brings us some emotional stories from hospital workers on the front lines. Every single time I walk into that hospital, it affects me personally. It affects my family personally. It affects my daughter personally. Dr. Evelina Graver wasn't supposed to be in the ICU. Is there ever a moment where you can leave it behind? In all honesty, I'm kind of afraid of those moments. I'm afraid of the moments that I actually will allow myself to truly think and absorb all that I've just seen. Where they are all on ventilators. When the coronavirus began to spread, she was redeployed overnight. This is my daily test. From the coronary care unit. Did anything prepare you for what you saw on day one? Nothing. Day one was nearly two months ago. In the weeks since, her parents and then her grandparents contracted the virus. On April 25th, her 99-year-old grandfather, a Holocaust survivor, passed away. She still hasn't been able to see her grandmother. It's too risky. There has been insomnia, anxiety, and lingering fear. I'm fearful. I'm fearful that me being as a high-risk person that I am and being exposed, that I'm going to expose everyone and anyone that I love. I'm fearful of depression. I'm fearful of anxiety. I'm fearful of post-traumatic stress disorder. There is no timeline, no handbook for this pandemic. Anybody who says they're not scared during this is lying to you. I mean, As a paramedic, Alex Dorazillo is trained to deal with death, but he's never experienced it to this degree. He worries about the toll to come. I mean, we may not feel it now, but, you know, summer, fall, when the dust all settles, I think that a lot of, you know, first responders might be dealing with PTSD. 
mental health concerns are, are so often stigmatized that it can be challenging, especially in a field like medicine. Healthcare workers and anyone on the front lines of this pandemic are really at increased risk of PTSD and other emotional disorders. Hospitals around the country are responding, adding additional mental health resources, including counseling. Emergency medicine has some of the highest burnout rates for physicians. Now, increasing numbers of frontline healthcare workers are dealing with similar unrelenting stress. Their families feel it too. I miss her a lot, all the time. Do you worry about your mom? Extremely. Um, I worry that she can get sick and possibly infect others and infect me when she comes home. Dr. Graver says 13-year-old Kayla has been forced to grow up quickly. As a mother, <laughs> you just feel like you're, you're not there. You're not there when your child is scared. You just feel helpless and kind of useless. It's a horrible feeling. Sorry. That's okay. It really sucks. And as you're trying to juggle all of that, there are people looking at you and they are saying, you're our heroes. There's so many times when I hear the seven o'clock clap from work. I just want to be home with my child to, to just be there and to kind of feel like you're her hero. You're like, as a mom. It's those moments as mom that keep her going. The silver lining is the fact that the quality that we spend, maybe the quantity is not as much, and but the quality is just so much more meaningful. We're just us. In so many ways, Dr. Graber uh, is emblematic of what people are seeing across the country, as you pointed out, Jake, really in these hotspots. But that's going to start to move across the country. When her parents were both ill, by the way, she basically set up an ICU in their apartment and she sort of ran it via FaceTime because she was so concerned about them going to the hospital. She said she hopes that by speaking out, it will also encourage some of her colleagues to do the same because she recognizes that they all need to start talking about what they're experiencing, especially as it starts to set in. All right, Erica Hill, a very important piece. Thank you so much for, for bringing that to us. Uh, joining us now, Andrea Bonnier, a clinical psychologist, professor at Georgetown University. Um, she's also the author of Detox Your Thoughts, which is out now. Um, Andrea, thanks for joining us. You just heard from healthcare workers on the front lines, not only worried about getting infected and then bringing that infection home and, and hurting their family members, but they're also worried about the emotional toll that is resulting from all of this. What should healthcare workers be doing right now to help them get through this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad to hear some of them speaking up because I feel like in some ways our government is failing them and hospitals are creating their own resources and they're speaking to each other and creating counseling for each other. But we need more funding and that people need to be speaking out about the fact that the mental health crisis that is likely looming applies not even only to healthcare providers, but across the board. And we're not hearing anything from the federal government about how we're going to plan for this, how we're going to screen for this, how we're going to offer services for this. So continuing to have the conversation and also, of course, reach out to each other. Social support is so important in the throes of trauma. That's what they should be doing right now. There have been um, two recent reports of suicides by frontline healthcare workers. Well, healthcare workers. Uh, Dr. Lorna Breen, she was an emergency physician. John Mondello was an emergency medical technician. Um, what's your message to healthcare workers who might also be having suicidal ideation right now, might also be thinking this because of how overwhelmed they feel and how they're confronted with this horror day in, day out. Yeah, there is no shame in speaking out. And I hope that the communities of healthcare providers can encourage each other to speak out. They are undergoing trauma. They're undergoing stress. It's almost like being in a war in certain ways. And as a culture, much as we say support our troops and then we don't necessarily fund their mental health services, we also have to do the same here. Think about what it means to support our health care providers. It means giving them the resources, giving them the ability to say, you know, I'm struggling with depression. This is too much. I feel traumatized. I feel like I can't cope. And for them to be able to avail themselves of the resources out there, there are suicide hotlines. They're seeing an increase 
certainly over this time. But also we have a suicide crisis in this country, even pre-pandemic. Rates have been rising for the past two decades in the United States. And it's time that we really go from just having a conversation about it to seeing the government put forth money to really make a difference in this. We also uh, hear uh, with all these people being cooped up, we hear about an increase in domestic violence cases, child abuse cases. Um, When people talk about how there is a health toll to staying inside, too, that's one of the things uh, they're talking about. How should people uh, be dealing with that? Yeah, the health toll of people's anxiety and stress and relationship conflicts and child abuse is significant. And there are resources out there. I think we need to support each other within the community. Right now, there are a lot of children, for instance, that don't have the daily teacher check-in, seeing how they're doing. And so we're seeing that uptick in domestic violence. We're seeing that uptick in child abuse cases. And we really need to think about who we can check in on, even just informally, how we can try to help each other to keep an eye on this. Because right now, it's really a period of time where the usual resources are not working as well because all of those social safety nets and just daily contacts with with adults who care about these children aren't happening to the same extent. I know that um, for for our family, sometimes we make sure that if somebody has a bad moment, including dad, uh, that we say, hey, you know what? This is tough. This is tough. I'm sorry. That was a bad moment. Uh, it's also an important time for for people not going through the things that we've already talked about, but just regular folks who are cooped up just to take it easy on each other uh, and including take it easy on yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Jake, I think the empathy piece is so crucial here because when we show empathy to each other, we help each other be less afraid. And I think some of the negative reactions we're seeing people out there, you know, not acting very altruistically come from fear and come from not being able to express fear. And so when we can empathize with each other within our families, within our friend groups, with our coworkers, we allow a state to be created where people feel comfortable speaking up. And when they can talk about their fears, they can cope a lot more easily with them. All right, Andrea Bonnier, always excellent to have you on. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Jake. And we're still monitoring the White House as we wait for the White House press briefing to begin. Plus, why your next vacation may never look the same again. We have some new numbers from several major companies in real distress. Stay with us. In the money lead today, new evidence of coronavirus shredding what's left of the travel and tourism industries. United Airlines said it plans to lay off 30 percent of its staff. Norwegian Cruise Line warned investors it may go out of business entirely. And this astonishing figure from Disney, its first quarter profits dropped 91%, a 91% drop. CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley uh, joins us now. And Julia, even if these kinds of companies are able to get federal bailouts, that's just a short-term fix for for a a big long-term problem. This is exactly the point. Travel was the first to be hit. And the message from the industry is that it's going to be among the last to recover Look at United Airlines. They took a multi-billion bailout and they're saying that it's not enough. They're still going to cut workers in the future. That's the reality. Norwegian Cruise Line, you mentioned, they said today they managed to borrow lots of cash to tide them over. But when are we going to feel confident enough to get on a cruise ship or go to a Disney theme park? We simply don't know. The long term's easier to call. We love to travel. Science will save the industry. But to get to the long term, you have to survive the short term. And that's the big challenge here and the big unknown. And the same, of course, going, goes uh, for small businesses getting loans. This temporary money, it's, it's not going to last longer, much longer. It's exactly the same. You can take that money as a small business. You can pay workers for eight weeks. But then what? We don't know. And we're already seven to eight weeks into this crisis. Those workers are probably now on benefits probably best to leave them there. I think that's what we're seeing. There's no easy choices here. You and I have talked a lot about the gig economy. Today we heard Airbnb said it's going to lay off 25 percent of its staff. Uber is letting go go of about 14 percent. The pandemic is obviously forcing gig workers to, to rethink how they can get this income. Absolutely. Some of their income or all of their income. You were the first to point this out, Jake. It's 29 million workers in the United States. Three million of those are Uber drivers and COVID-19 has been a game changer. Do you want to get in a car with a stranger? Do you want a stranger in your house at this moment doing some kind of work? 
Probably not if it means risking infection. This is going to be the challenge going forward. And these workers at least now qualify for benefits. But from what I've heard, that's been a huge challenge. Getting back to work is going to be key here. The question is how and when. California is now the first state to borrow federal money uh, to pay unemployment claims for its citizens. Several other states are making similar requests. What's your prediction on how long it will take states to get back on decent financial footing where they can pay unemployment benefits out of their own coffers? Years. And I don't say that lightly. It's going to come down to the speed of the recovery. It's going to come down to more support from Congress, which is vital. Just to give you a comparison, California borrowed almost $11 billion after the financial crisis. It took them almost a decade to pay it back. Paying into that fund is not easy because you have to be in a position to raise taxes on businesses or shrink benefits. So that's going to be the challenge. California is the first. It's certainly not going to be the last. Labor Department data says there's almost or more than 20 states now in jurisdictions that can't pay benefits themselves for a one-year recession. That's the reality. More help's needed, and it means more borrowing in the short term. All right, CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, thank you as always. In our world lead today, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's looking ahead to reopening and plans to announce new measures on Sunday, but he is also warning that a second wave would result in an economic disaster. CNN's Max Foster joins me now from London. Max, even though the UK is about to start easing some restrictions, the prime minister says now is not the right time to make international comparisons on coronavirus response. He does say that because the death toll in the UK went over 30,000, putting it at the uh, highest death toll in Europe, the second highest in the world. Boris Johnson, as you say, saying these sorts of comparisons aren't helpful. Max, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you right now. Max, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you right now because uh, Kayleigh McEnany is now taking questions in the White House briefing room, and we're going to take that live. I believe he decided that Coronavirus Task Force is here to stay. They've done great work. Um, I've witnessed it. I'm in the Coronavirus Task Force meetings, and they've gotten our country through this. There were supposed to be 2.2 million deaths, um, and we're at a point where we're far lower than that, and it's thanks to the great work of the task force and to the leadership of President Trump. But whose idea was it initially to wind it down? Again, I'm not going further. The president has answered this four times today. John? I have a question about masks. I know there was some back and forth over the president wearing a mask yesterday. I don't want to ask about that, but the, the White House's view, it, 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 what is the White House's message to the American people? Does the White House, uh, does the president believe that people should be wearing masks as they try to get back to some semblance of their uh, normal life? Well, as we put out, it's recommended, but that's the choice of the individual as to whether they wear a mask or not. The president uh, yesterday, the CEO of Honeywell, said that there was no need, and so um, he followed that that advice and that guidance. And, you know, I would just note on the note of masks, um, 70 million N95 masks have been distributed across the country, 20 million, 25 million, rather, are what's used in the average year for our health care workers. So the fact that in a few weeks we've distributed nearly three times what is used in a year is extraordinary. And that's not to mention the 120 million surgical masks and the many other supplies that this president has. If I just follow up, what, what, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen in a number of polls, there's a huge difference between Democrats and Republicans over whether or not they think it's necessary to wear a mask uh, in public. Do you have any sense to why that would be? No sense as to why that would be. That's the choice of the American public. It's the choice of the individual as to whether uh, to wear a mask or not. But again, I'd praise the extraordinary work of this administration in distributing those masks and ensuring health care providers uh, get them. Yes. Kaylee, we were just talking about masks. You said at Honeywell, the president was told by the folks at Honeywell, as was the team, that they didn't need to wear masks. The reason he was told that is because the people who would be interacting with them had all been tested and had been shown to be negative before that took place, I guess. So the president had those circumstances. Obviously, he's the president. But why shouldn't all Americans who go back to work be able to get a test before they do to feel comfortable in their own work environment to be interacting with other individuals? Yeah, well, let's dismiss a myth about tests right now. If we tested every single American in this country at this moment, uh, we'd have to retest them an hour later and then an hour later after that, because at any moment you could theoretically contract this virus. So the notion that everyone needs to be tested is just um, simply nonsensical. The people who need to be tested are vulnerable populations. That's why Dr. Burks has repeatedly emphasized we need to surge nursing homes with the testing, meat processing facilities. That's where the testing is needed. We have to be strategic with our testing, and we have done that so far. And again, you know, if we want to talk about testing, 
and the volume of testing, the fact that in South Korea, there are, we always hear about South Korea and their tests. There are 11 tests per thousand here in the United States. That's 17 tests per thousand. Um, our hotspots per capita are higher than other countries. Um, we have two times, we've conducted two times another, uh, the number of tests of other countries around the world. We're at a very strong place in this country with testing, but rest assured we'll deploy it strategically because that's what the American public expects of us. So just to follow up, to be clear, should people, I guess, should people accept the risk that they could become ill if they go back to work? Look, each and every state has put into place, this is a governor-led effort, first of all. Let me emphasize that. The president has said that governors make the decisions as to how to move forward, and we encourage them to follow our phased approach. Each state has submitted to us a list of, of testing that they need in order to safely reopen. I was sitting in the meeting when Admiral Joie uh, pulled out the list for several states and said, here's the testing you requested to open safely. Here's the testing I'm giving you to meet that need. It's pretty extraordinary, uh, this wide-scale effort by the Trump administration to ensure states have what they need. Uh, so as states reopen, um, they'll do so safely, and they'll do so with the supplies of the what, Trump administration. What does it say that so many of those Francesca? states, what, what does it say that so many of those governors, those states, aren't following the guidelines that the president dictated from this podium. We encourage every single governor to follow the guidelines that we've put forward the, to a phased reopening approach. Um, we have this beautiful concept called federalism, which means that the states lead on this, um, and that's what that's what we're doing. It's a governor-led decision, but um, we encourage everyone to follow the expert um, written guidelines that we've put forward. I do have a question about, about reopening, but, but first... Some of the areas that have been hardest hit by coronavirus have been urban areas. What is the White House doing, or is there any targeted effort to help stop the spread in minority communities? Yeah, it's a very important question um, because we know that some of our underserved communities are hit most by the coronavirus. Um, absolutely, we've done quite a bit, um, invested, first of all, $1.4 billion into our nation's 13,000 community centers. That ensures that 28 million people living in medically underserved areas receive funding. Also, that announcement I had for you last, last week about hospital funding, $2 billion of that um, was, was geared towards specifically ensuring that men and women in underserved communities and those hospitals hospitals got that money. Um, and I, I would also note just that the president has directed Secretary Ben Carson to focus the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council on underserved communities. So very important. This is a community that's been very hard hit. Um, and rest assured, we are laser focused on making sure that these communities are assisted. Can I ask yes. about reopening as well? Sure. Okay. So the task force has put out phased guidelines for states to reopen and individual guidelines, but it hasn't said very much about businesses specifically. Does it plan to put out any any detailed guidelines for businesses like retailers and restaurants to reopen? Well, in the phased approach, there are some recommendations for how, for instance, restaurants should reopen um, and the, the, the distancing that's required. And as you go through the phases, that distancing um, is shrunk. Um, and there are other mechanisms that are outlined for restaurants and movie theaters and sporting venues. So I would argue that our phased approach does take that into account. And each and every state, by the way, the governor is welcome to reach out to us. We're constantly communicating with the governors. And when I say we, the administration, meaning Dr. Burks and others. So we are happy to consult. With, with, with regard to specifics. Detailed. Some other organiz outside organizations have put you know, very detailed step-by-step, -step. here's what you should do. You should require masks. Mm -hmm. You should require them to sit this far apart. You should only have half of it open in phases. Anything like that? We've put together a phased approach. Many of those um, guidelines are within. We've consulted individually with states, but as I said, it's a government governor-led effort. It's a state-led effort um, in which the federal government will consult, and we do so each and every day. So yes? uh, you've used the phrase, uh, warrior to describe everyday Americans, the president's using that phrase as well. What's the thinking behind using that description? And is that basically asking Americans to put themselves in harm way, harm's way like warriors do? Not in the slightest. It's actually the opposite. You know, the president's been clear that at this moment, you know, we're at a wartime moment where we're fighting the invisible enemy. And by that, I mean COVID-19. Um, and on the contrary, the, the notion that the American people are warriors, they're warriors because they've stayed home. They're warriors because they've social distanced. They're warriors because this mitigation effort um, is something that could only be done by the American people coming together and making really hard sacrifices. And the American public has done that. And we salute each of you um, around the country that have listened to these guidelines. I know it's been difficult. I know it's been hard. But it's because of you that we're at this place where we can reopen the country. To be clear, that's the opposite of what the president says, specifically because he says Americans must be warriors to reopen the economy. You're saying they've already been warriors by staying home. We're saying they... 
We're saying the exact same thing. The president says they're warriors to reopen because guess what? In order to get to reopening, you have to social distance. Um, you had to put it together, those very hard choices that allowed us to get to a point where we have um, the one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. And that's because of the American people. So it took the American people being warriors to get us to the point of reopening. Blake. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, I want to ask you about best practices, but first on China and some of the comments that the president made in the Oval Office. He said that there will be a report coming out next week, 10 days or so, as to whether or not they're living up to the deal China is. As it stands, though, right now, at this moment, how does the White House view the U.S. relationship with China right now? Right now, it's a relationship of, of disappointment and frustration because the president has said, how frustrated he is that some of the decisions of China put American lives at risk. Um, I'll share just a few that China, for instance, did not share the genetic sequence until after a professor in Shanghai did so on his own. And after that genetic sequence was shared the next day, the lab was shut down for, quote, rectification. Uh, the World Health Organization slow walked information on human to human transmission that was not um, adequately provided by China. Um, China didn't let U.S. investigators in. And look, that those decisions, um, put American lives at risk. And, and the president is certainly not happy about that. And as the president said, you'll be hearing more about Maybe that next business week. Business partners? Sorry? Maybe trusted business partners? Look, the president has worked with China and stood up to China and got the phase one China deal, a huge win, $250 billion. Um, the president managed to get that done. Um, and the president uh, appreciates that, that China got us to that point of the phase one China deal. So, you know, I'll leave it to the president as to how we move forward. And I certainly won't get ahead of him on that. And on best practices, we heard the president say, as it relates to schools, that he wants to see schools open, but maybe teachers who are old, older than 60 not necessarily come back into the classroom. When you talk about reopening the economy, reopening the country again, there's a lot of people out there wondering, well, my school-aged child, should they come back into contact with a family member who might be older than 60, per se? What is the White House advice on that and families who are all over the country saying, is it time to meet up again? Well, the president and the task force have been clear that vulnerable Americans, our senior citizens, uh, need to shelter in place and they need to take extra measures of precaution because, as we know, they've been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. So I certainly would include the senior community um, to continue to follow the guidelines we've put forward. Uh, Dr. Burks has mentioned an influx of asymptomatic coronavirus cases. And without more widespread testing, how do you get a handle on something like that? And how do you keep people without symptoms from spreading the disease around the country? Yeah, so it's an important question. We get um, information on asymptomatic spread when we uh, test in the meat processing facilities and other facilities. Um, again, you know, we can just test strategically. And it's important that once we test and we find um, an example of someone who has coronavirus, um, that we can contact trace and ensure that it's not spread to other members of the community. So contact tracing is an important measure, um, and we're testing strategically and in line with governors. John. What's the process, uh, Kaylee, for the distribution and access to remdesivir? Yeah, remdesivir is a great example um, of innovation in this country. I would note that remdesivir is a drug that the president mentioned um, quite often. And as it turns out, um, there's a, a lot of hope and a lot of promise when it comes to remdesivir. Um, Gilead chairman announced last week um, and CEO Daniel O'Day announced that they would be donating 1.5 million vials of remdesivir and working with the federal government to distribute to patients across the nation. So this will get out there. And we thank Gilead for the great work they've done um, and for giving these 1.5 million vials, which will help a lot of Americans around the country. But, but, what's, but what's the process for distributing it and giving access to patients? I don't have any information on that um, as of now, but if once I get that, I, I can share that with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Kaylee. Uh, the president said yesterday he does not want Dr. Fauci testifying before the House uh, because it's filled with Trump haters. How is that consistent with oversight and transparency? Well, first of all, um what the president noted was specific to the House. It's important to note that Dr. Fauci will be testifying before the Senate, which means he will be fielding questions from both Democrats and Republicans. Um, the House, however, um, and specifically Chairwoman Nita Lowy's committee, did not act in good faith. Um, Mark Meadows had three calls with Chairwoman Nita Lowy three nights ago um, when she called to ask if Dr. Fauci could testify before a subcommittee hearing. And uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has made clear he wants to make the best use he can 
span of the task force members' time. Of course, they're working hard to save American lives, so that's very important. So um, to that end, he said in the three phone calls, you know, what is the purpose of this hearing? Can you give me um, the subject matter? And Lowy was unable to tell uh, the chief of staff what the subject matter was. The last phone call they had was at 1046 p.m. on that evening, and Lowy agreed to follow up in the morning with details. Those details were never received. Instead, uh, we got a press release. So that's what we call a publicity stunt. Um, we encourage the House to act in good faith, much like the Senate did. And as I noted, Dr. Fauci will be speaking in a, in a week and a half before the Senate. So the notion that he's being blocked is just farcical. Let me ask you just one other task and one other topic. Someone have a question. Um, does the president have doubts about the way the death toll is being calculated? Does he think perhaps the, the true toll is lower? So the president answered this, um, and he said no just a, a few moments ago in the Oval Office. Um, on the mortality rate, I would note, as I noted just a few moments ago, we have one of the lowest in the world mortality rates. Um, it's because of the hard work of the American people. Our, our mortality rate, excuse me, is currently 218 per million. Um, you compare that to Spain's at 548 per million, Italy at 485 per million. Um, this country is in a place where because of the work of the American people, we have um, escaped that 2.2 million number because of the um, extraordinary social distancing effort put in place by the American people. Yeah, way in the back. Thank you. Uh, the president has said many times that he's uh, received praise in phone calls with foreign leaders uh, because of this administration's response to the coronavirus outbreak. Who exactly are those heads of state and heads of government who are praising this administration for its response? Well, I, I won't um, reveal any contents of his private conversations with world leaders, but I will certainly share some of the very public comments from Democrat governors like Gavin Newsom, who said every single direct request that President Trump, that he was given, uh, President Trump was capable of meeting. He has met them. Governor Phil Murphy, Democrat from New Jersey. The president knows New Jersey. He and his team have been extremely responsive in our hour of need, whether it was ventilators. Um, we got a huge amount of supplies to test. And of course, I, I love um, the ones from Governor Andrew Cuomo, who praised this administration's response as phenomenal, um, saying he's delivered for New York. The Army Corps of Engineers, we built thousands of beds. He sent the Navy ship Comfort to New York. He has delivered for New York. Uh, president Trump has delivered for this nation. Uh, thank you, Katie. Um, the president was talking earlier about Dr. Bright being a disgruntled employee. Um, one of the allegations in that whistleblower complaint is that in January, when there was still a huge shortage of N95 masks, that he had excuse me, been in contact with a company that was offering up to a million of those masks and he couldn't get anybody at HHS willing to uh, engage with that company, which then subsequently exported one million N95s to China. Um, is that something that you're looking into or concerned about? Look, I'd, um, on issues of Dr. Bright, I'd refer you to HHS. Um, I'm not going to get involved with the personnel issues or the substance of that complaint, but I will once again uh, note you mentioned masks, uh, 70 million plus delivered. And again, that's three times the amount used by healthcare providers in any given year. So we've done a, a rather good job when it comes to supplies. Back to the question about teachers and what the president said earlier about keeping those who are 60 or older out of the classroom. What is the message to older Americans? Should they not do anything, not leave their homes until there is a vaccine? Or what would the president have them do if they, they're not allowed to teach because of their age? Well, our, our task force has said that vulnerable communities like our seniors um, should shelter in place. Um, that being said, we encourage every American, if you have a, a symptom that is pressing, that you need to go to your doctor. I've been disturbed to read uh, many quotes from doctors, um, stories of people who are staying home with chest pain um, and, and don't go to the hospital when they could be on the verge of having a heart attack, who are missing um, important appointments like mammograms, um, screenings like colonoscopies. Um, it's important uh, that we as Americans continue to go to our doctors uh, to get medically necessary procedures, and when we have symptoms that are, that need to be addressing, like chest pain, that you do go to your doctor. So if seniors need to go to their doctors, um, make sure to call your health care provider, go see your health care provider, go to the hospital, should you have a symptom like that. Chanel, thank you, Secretary Matthew. Um, going back to a topic about the House in a separate chamber, um, acting DNI Rick Grinnell has stated this week that he is prepared to release about 6,000 pages worth of transcripts relating to Adam Schiff's probe. 
Can you confirm whether or not the executive branch is um, conducting any kind of investigation into House members for potential wrongdoing, or is that something you can comment on yet? Yeah, I don't have any information on that subject matter. That's um, the first time hearing of that. Can I just come back to Jeff's question about Dr. Fauci and then the president's statement that uh, there are too many Trump haters in, in, in the House. I mean, does the White House really believe that you can decide to have officials testify in the Republican-controlled Senate but not testify in the Democratic-controlled House? Doesn't the House have legitimate oversight and, and a legitimate uh, a responsibility, not just not just a, you know authority, but a responsibility to have somebody like Anthony Fauci testify? Will Dr. Fauci be questioned by Democrats in that Senate hearing? Yes, he will be. So, what, so why? But, but are you saying that so the Senate's fine, the House has no role in oversight? The House needs to act in good faith. We don't have time in the middle of a pandemic for publicity stunts. It's not the time for that. It's not the place for that. In the course of in the course of three phone calls, you should be able to give the subject matter to ensure it's the best use of Dr. Fauci's time. As you yourself noted, in the Republican-controlled Senate, uh, Dr. Fauci will indeed be asked questions by Democrats. Is the subject matter a mystery? I mean, yeah. Uh, Kaylee, in a previous life, before you were press secretary, you worked for the campaign, and you made a comment, I believe, on Fox, in which you said President Trump will not allow the coronavirus to come to this country. Given what has happened since then, obviously, would you like to take that back? Well, first, let me note, I was asked a question um, on Fox Business about President's travel restrictions. I noted what was the intent behind those travel restrictions, which is we will not see the coronavirus come here. We will not see terrorism come here, referring to an earlier set of travel restrictions. I guess I would turn the question back on the media and ask similar questions. Does Vox want to take back? that they proclaim that the coronavirus would not be a deadly pandemic? Does the Washington Post want to take back that they told Americans to get a grip the flu is bigger than the coronavirus? Does the Washington Post likewise want to take back that our brains are causing us to exaggerate the threat of the coronavirus? Does the New York Times want to take back that fear of the virus may be spreading faster than the virus itself? Does NPR want to take back that the flu was a much bigger threat than the coronavirus? And finally, once again, the Washington Post, would they like to take back that the government should not respond aggressively to the coronavirus? I'll leave you with those questions, and maybe you'll have some answers in a few days. Yep. Hey, Thank you very much. Just, you were, you were, you were prepared for that. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.